Welcome to Palm Vista Community Church as we continue our series in the letter of First Peter. The series is entitled, Living as Suffering Saints for God's Promised Glory. And the title of our message this morning is Trust Issues. Trust Issues. And it comes from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And as you turn there, let me just ask you, where are your trust issues? Would it be with family, friends, romantic relationships, finances, your health, the health of a loved one, the church, your career? Who or what is at the core of your trust issues? Well, let's read God's answer to that question here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 19. And before we read it, I'd like to pray again that God would give us the grace for those areas where we have trust issues. You know, I've got a real trust issue here. And God would speak to you there, not just in general. We are going to talk about trusting God this morning. That is a good, general, biblical, theological, doctrinal rock upon which you can build your life. But that God the Holy Spirit would drop it down into your life where you're having trouble trusting him this morning. And his spirit would minister this word to your soul. And you would, you would grow in trusting him in an often difficult world with lots of variables, lots of things you can't control and for most of us, we have, an, we have a problem with that. We have an issue with that. So let's pray. Father, I pray that as we turn to 1 Peter four twelve to 19, Lord, that you would give us the grace to not just believe that we are called to trust you in the midst of difficulty and suffering, but specifically, Lord, in those areas of difficulty and suffering that we're experiencing, where we have trust issues, Lord, that we would, would be able to grow in trusting you. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read together, shall we? 1 Peter four twelve to 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Verse 19 is the thematic verse for the entire letter of 1 Peter. Therefore... Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing 
good. In the corporate world, executive teams often embark on trust-building exercises, and one of those trust-building exercises is called the ropes course or the challenge course. And these courses are comprised of various exercises that teach the participants to trust each other. One such exercise is called the trust fall. It starts with about a four-foot platform where the participant mounts the platform, turns his back to those that are behind him on the ground, and then simply falls back into their arms. It sounds simple, but of all of the exercises, this one perhaps is the most mentally challenging. The passage today is about trusting God as we share Christ's sufferings. In fact, the thematic statement for my sermon is as follows. Trust God as you share Christ's suffering and look to Christ's glory. And this, my friends, can be the most mentally challenging element of our Christian walk. To trust God as we share in Christ's suffering we must develop a biblical theology of suffering. And that's exactly what God gives us here, beginning in verse 12. Point one, share Christ's suffering. Without a theology of suffering, dear friends, suffering will sneak up and surprise us, as verse 12 tells us. We will begin to ask the wrong questions and often come up with the wrong answers that can lead to confusion, disillusionment and discouragement, and even anger against God and his church. Peter begins this theology of suffering with God's heart toward us. The very first word of verse 12 is beloved. We hear here God's heart toward us, expressed through Peter, who's sharing his heart for the suffering saints in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And he's saying that, I love you. And I have called you to suffer. This suffering should not surprise you. For this suffering is what everyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will face. Church, that's the reality of the matter. That's the theology of suffering that this scripture gives us. We will suffer if we desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3.12 on the screen. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. God wants you to know this morning, you will suffer if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. You will. Now, how am I going to suffer? Well, I think, first of all, this is for those who self-identify as Christians, This is for those who share the gospel of Jesus Christ regularly. This is for those who believe the Bible and say, I'm going to obey what Christ has taught me about the sanctity of life, about what marriage looks like, about what's right and wrong, about how I live with integrity before other people. So we will suffer as God's people. And that suffering oftentimes will play out as we serve others, even those that may be causing the suffering. It will play out in our workplace. It will play out in our schools, in our neighborhoods, with our friends. It will play out as people that we used to go party with on South Beach and were our best buddies. Suddenly we don't go party with them on South Beach until 4 in the morning, 
Friday and Saturday night and do all the things that people do there because we now belong to Christ and they may begin to to reject us. They may begin to ridicule us. Remember, two weeks ago we talked about that in verse 3 of chapter 4. They mock you. And that mocking turns into opposition. That's how that suffering may be seen. Some may lose their jobs because of a Christian stand. Or family members may be estranged from you. What God is saying here in this scripture is, don't be surprised when that happens. Because here's the theology of suffering. Christ Jesus himself wants you to be ready for it. He predicted it. John 15, 18 to 20. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus speaking, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. Now in verse 12... This suffering is described as a fiery trial. And these fiery trials, according to verse 12, come to test our faith and to purify our faith. The fiery trials, the suffering that we're talking about this morning, are not meant to prove whether I have faith or not. No, they are meant to purify the faith I have as a gift from God. In verse 13, God calls us to rejoice as we share in Christ's suffering. I want you to note the contrast here. Verse 12, he says, don't be surprised by suffering. Verse 13, but rather rejoice by suffering. So it's not enough just to not be surprised by suffering. As if suffering were going to jump out of the closet late at night when the lights are off and you're walking by it. It's not enough. But actually, you're looking forward. Suffering's coming over tonight. How can that be, Al? Well, here's why. Because if we share, if we share in the sufferings of Christ, that means we're united by faith with Christ. That's why we rejoice. But it doesn't stop there. Because in verse 13, he says a second time that you may also rejoice and be glad. The Greek there is actually that you might gladly rejoice. Isn't that a little bit of an overkill, Peter? You've already said rejoice in suffering. Is that not countercultural enough for you? But then Peter says, no, 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 no. Don't just rejoice in suffering, but gladly rejoice in suffering. Listen, I gladly rejoice in watching a ball game. I gladly rejoice in eating a pizza with lots of anchovies and vegetables. I gladly rejoice in, in having fun with my family. But gladly rejoice in suffering is not something that I typically do or think about. But that's what Peter is talking about here, that we would gladly rejoice in suffering because, look at the end of verse 13, when his glory is revealed, the reason I gladly rejoice in his suffering is this, if I identify with Christ today, if I gladly rejoice in my suffering for Christ today, that means that I will rejoice and experience his glory when he comes back. Those are those eyes of faith. Faith gladly rejoices in sharing Christ's suffering now, looking to Christ's glory to come. Unbelief, on the other hand, bitterly complains in sharing Christ's sufferings now, not seeing 
his glories to come. And, and at, at both ends of that spectrum, at the gladly rejoicing end of the spectrum of sharing Christ's sufferings, and at the bitter complaining of sharing Christ's sufferings, somewhere in the middle is where we live. So I guess the first question I have for you is, are you sharing in Christ's sufferings? Do you self-identify as a Christian? Are there times where you stand up and for the name of Christ suffer ridicule, rejection? If not, then that's a good question to ask yourself. Why not? That's a good question. Second question, if you are suffering to some degree because of Christ, how are you doing on the gladly rejoicing to bitterly complaining? Where are you on the spectrum? Now I know that we're on, that spectrum is a moving scale, isn't it? Any given day, I'm somewhere on that spectrum. But let's give percentages. Percentages. Are you 50% and more kind of over here on the gladly rejoicing side, closer to there? Or are you 50% or more on the bitterly complaining? I think that's the question that we have to ask ourselves. And a step, and a step in the direction to move from the bitterly complaining or mildly complaining or just cynical, and I've pulled back from everybody and I'll go to church on Sunday with my arms crossed and give Al a funny look, but I'm not really going to be involved in anything. If we talk about Jesus at work, no, nah, I did that once. And they nailed me. They made fun of me for four or five months. I didn't get that pay raise. But to move from mildly complaining and pulling back to start moving toward gladly rejoicing, yeah! What moves us that way is to get God's perspective on this. Look at verse 14. God gives us his perspective. He hammers home his perspective Verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. See, verse 14 tells us this, that that when others insult and curse you for the name of Christ, then God is actually blessing you. This is God's perspective. This is what Christ said to us on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 11 to 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. Don't you know that Peter is simply quoting Jesus here? Glad, rejoicing, rejoice and be glad. He's preaching to us the Sermon on the Mount. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) Yeah, sure, Al. Stop talking about suffering and then it'll get exciting. No, but it's in the context of suffering. You can't remove that context from this text. So gladly rejoice when you are insulted or persecuted because actually you are blessed. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. See, Jesus is saying, I'm going to share Christ's suffering now and I'm going to look to Christ's glory to come. He teaches us that in Matthew 5. Peter echoes that in 1 Peter 4. This is the theology of suffering. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Sharing in Christ's suffering, being insulted for the name of Christ. Guys, the reason we can say we're blessed, it means we belong to Jesus. Look at the second part of verse 14. An amazing part. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Peter here is quoting Isaiah 11 two, 
where it says that for Messiah, the spirit of the Lord will be upon him. What Peter is saying is this, I can gladly rejoice because when I suffer for Christ, that means the spirit of God is on me. God has chosen me. My identity is in Christ and I'm his. And it's that same spirit of glory in me that tells me and reminds me that suffering always precedes glory. So if Jesus suffered, and he did for us on the cross, and then went into glory, so I as his follower will suffer, I will, that is God's will, and there'll be glory on the other side of that. This is where we trust God as we share Christ's suffering and look to Christ's glory. Christian suffering does not mean that God has abandoned you. It means that God's spirit is on you. It means you belong to him. And so actually the opposite then is a question we should ask ourselves. If I'm not suffering at all for the sake of Christ, why not? That's a question. But if I'm suffering for the sake of Christ, not not if I suffer for doing evil. Verse 15 tells us don't do that. Not if I suffer because I'm rude. Not if I suffer because I'm thoughtless. Not if I suffer because I'm a bad employee. I'm not talking about that. Don't blame that on your Christianity. I'm talking about I self-identify with Jesus. I stand up and humbly and gently share the gospel. Or I stop going out drinking with my buddies. And I think, well, what's wrong with you? Or I'm not going to lie like everybody else does at work. Or I'm not going to laugh at the jokes that are inappropriate anymore. I'm not going to be self-righteous and a jerk about it. But I humbly do it. If I suffer for that, I am blessed by our Lord. That means that I belong to Christ. I no longer belong to Al Pino. Al Pino's agenda isn't driving this. My desire to be loved, my desire to be promoted, my desire to be liked, my desire to be protected is no longer running my life. But God is my Lord and I belong to him and the spirit of glory is on me. And I'm suffering now, but I see the glory to come. They may not see it, so I'm kind to them and gentle to them, and I serve them even when they're hammering me because I see a glory to come. I see We can see around the corner spiritually. We, we can see what's coming, and, and we see where we've come from, and we see God's mercy. And I say, okay, Lord, thank you for this theology of suffering because that means I belong to you. The spirit of glory is on me. The spirit of glory is on me. Look at verse 16. In verse 16, God calls us to glorify his name, not being ashamed of suffering as a Christian. This term Christian, this identity as Christian, is a word, Christianos is the Greek word, is a word that was first used for believers in Jesus Christ around A.D. 50. So around AD 50, they started calling Christians Christians because they followed Christ. And at the time of the writing of this letter, roughly AD 62, 12 years later, it still was not illegal to be called a Christian. But people were already starting to abuse you if you were a Christian. You were already starting to be called a bigot. You were starting to be called an atheist. Did you know that Christians were called an atheist? Because they only believed in one God. In the pagan world, if you only believed in one God, you were an atheist. 
There's many gods. Christians were thought to be cannibals because they ate the body of Christ and drank the blood of Christ. It was slanderous. So by AD 62, you were already under pressure. You may be a good engineer, but if they found out you're a Christian and you go meet with those kooky people at Miami Lakes Middle School on Sunday, hmm, don't know about him. Two years later, by AD 64, under Nero, the persecution started in earnest. In fact, history tells us that right around that time is when Peter was martyred. He was crucified upside down. And by AD 110, 30-some years later, it was actually illegal to be called a Christian. Now, I don't know when that's going to happen. But you do kind of have your finger up into the wind, right? We're moving that way, aren't we? In the last 10 years... Things have shifted radically around several key issues. So that now if you say you're a Christian, you're looked at with a little bit of suspicion at work. Can we really trust that person? They believe what about marriage? What about the sanctity of life? And I don't know. Maybe by the time Hezekiah is college age. I hope not, but it may be illegal. He may not get into college as some of my friends in Cuba. Their kids could never go to college because they were Christians we got to get ready. I am not preaching fear. I'm just your pastor wanting to give you a theology of suffering before you start suffering. It's tough to get a theology of suffering when you're right in the midst of suffering. Let's get it now. Without fear. Without anger. But let's, let's, let's realize that it is actually God's will for us to suffer for the name of Christ. And verse 16 tells me that when that happens, I'm not ashamed. I don't know if any of you have experienced this at work, okay, or maybe in the mall, or just the shame of hearing someone on TV say that the reason there was a massacre in Orlando is because of fundamentalist Christians. And you identify as a Christian and you come to work the next day and there can be a temptation to have a little bit of shame, hold your head a little bit lower, not be quite as out there with your faith. I know many of you are out there with your faith at work. Thank you. But in this text here, what does it say at verse 16? Don't be ashamed. Look at this contrast. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Do you see the contrast? Don't be surprised, but gladly rejoice. Don't be ashamed, but glorify God. Not glorify Alpino so that I could be vindicated. It's not an argument I'm trying to win at work that my way is right. You may never win that argument. But you are glorifying your God in heaven. When you stand calmly, joyfully, without anger or furled eyebrows or hurling, you know, ugly things at people and calling them ugly names. I'm not talking about that. That would be suffering for being rude and foolish. I'm talking about suffering for being a Christian. And the name of Jesus, not the name of Alpino or any party or any movement, but the name of Jesus. When we do that, there's glory that is ascribed to God. 
See, what this text is saying to us is let us willingly suffer for Christ's name, trusting God, looking to Christ's glory, and this will bring honor not to us, but to Christ who suffered for us and rose in glory and promises to share that glory with us at his coming. So as you're in the lunchroom, as you're on the job site, as you're driving to work, the glory, the, the, the spirit of glory, the spirit of God is on you. And he's reminding you, even if we go on trial, and again, there's no official trials yet. There wasn't yet when this was written. But you know, just a thought came to my head. You know, Al, if you went on trial as a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? How about you? That's a question that popped into my head. That's a question that popped into my head. Oh, Lord, help us. To self-identify humbly with the name of Christ. Verses 17 and 18 are there to encourage us. So verses uh, 12 to 16 talk about the glory to come. Verses 17 and 18 talk about the judgment to come. Difficult verses to interpret. Look at them with me. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those, the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Verse 18. And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? The idea that Peter is borrowing from here is an Old Testament idea of the judgment of God beginning at the house of God. Peter was a Jew. He understood this, that God would come in judgment, not to destroy, but to purify his house, literally the temple. So Peter now brings this idea into the New Testament via the Holy Spirit who inspires him. And he's saying that this, that judgment is coming. When the glory of Christ comes, Along with that glory of Christ will come the judgment of Christ. He will judge the living and the dead. We talked about that two weeks ago. And and that will be a cataclysmic, amazing, glorious, awesome, and terrible moment. And to prefigure that moment today, that judgment has already started with God's household. What is meant here? Really, he's talking about those fiery trials in verse 12. He's talking about the suffering for Christ. What is meant here is that God deals with his church through suffering to purify his church by separating out the true believers from the false believers, the sheep from the goats. God will begin the process of sorting out who really are his people. And suffering reveals who God's people truly are. And that judgment has begun, dear friends. And this this suffering, it's hard. And in verse 18, Peter tells us, he's quoting here, by the way, verse 18. He's quoting Proverbs 11.31. And he's, and he's saying, listen, he's making an analogy. If Christians are saved with difficulty, that term in the ESV translated scarcely saved, really probably could be translated saved with difficulty. If it's true that that Christians are saved with difficulty, it's hard. How much worse will it be for those who are not obedient to the gospel, who are not Christians at that coming judgment day? Jesus himself said when he was on earth, the days will be shortened for the sake of the elect. Jesus says that the strive to enter that narrow door. See, this is a warning 
Juan Sanchez, in his commentary, says, This is a warning to those who are in the church but continue in their former passions. But it's also an encouragement to Christians to endure suffering faithfully. Peter wants to encourage his readers in Asia Minor in the first century. And God wants to encourage the readers in the 21st century in Miami Lakes to persevere in our faith even when we suffer for the name of Christ, even if persecution were to intensify. And we're to do it not worrying about the deeds of the persecutors because God will deal with them in his time. All all accounts will be settled. That's why we trust God when we suffer according to Christ's sufferings. And we look to Christ's glory. But you know, friends, listen. While we are encouraged by these verses, we also acknowledge what they are saying. Suffering is hard. Walking out our salvation is difficult. This test of faith is a serious test. The fire of suffering that separates the true and the false believer is no joke. But Peter has already given us assurance. If you're here wondering, oh, what does that mean for me, Al? Oh, listen to the assurance that Peter gives us at the beginning of this letter. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. God himself guards us by his power. Though we stumble, though it's hard, though we cry, though some days we're over here on the spectrum of bitter grumbling instead of over here in glad rejoicing, God will, will lead us. He's our shepherd. Today's theme, he's our father. He's saying, come on, son, come on, daughter. I'll carry you over there. Because he called us. He caused us to persevere by his power. And by his grace, and we can trust him. And that leads us to point two, the main point. Trust God, your faithful creator. Look at verse 19 with me. Trust God, your faithful creator. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Jesus entrusted himself to God on the cross when he cried out, Into your hands I commit my spirit. And it is this same faithful God to whom we cry out, Father, I trust you. I entrust my soul to you because you are a faithful creator. Entrusting things to God means giving him that which is most precious to us. How many of us have, been in, have entrusted our children to God? How many of us have entrusted our hopes and dreams to God? But here in this text, Peter and God, the Holy Spirit, is saying, entrust your very self, your soul, to God. Because it is God's will that you suffer according to Christ's sufferings. Because it is God's will that we suffer according to Christ's suffering. Do you see that in verse 19? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. This is the theme of the letter. We know. We know one thing when we read this. If it is God's will that I suffer, then God is in control in the midst of my suffering. 
Now, this may beg other questions. Why would God, who's in control, want me to suffer? Okay, that's another question. But you cannot question who's in control. Your suffering is not at the hands of your boss or your friend or a political leader or a terrorist group. It's not. Your suffering is in the hands of your God, who's a faithful creator. He's working out his plan in your life. He's bringing glory to his name through you sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Do you believe that God is in control? When everything seems out of control, when the pain is intense, do you believe that God is in control? I want to be in control. And it frustrates me. That's when I've got to bow my knee to God. God, you're in control. This isn't how I would do it. But, oh, Lord, I I humble myself before you. I believe that you are in control. I entrust my very life to you. And how do we entrust our lives to God? Well, read the text. Look at the last couple of words of verse 19. Entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Now, Quoting from Peter Davids in his commentary, what it means to do good has already been explained several times in the epistle. It means simply doing those things which the culture and God views as good. For example, obeying masters, following righteous laws, and submitting to husbands within the limits prescribed by their primary obedience to Christ. Doing good, despite the consequences, is how one lives out the entrusting of oneself To God. You know what this brings to mind for me? In Ephesians, it says that he saved us by grace alone, through faith alone, so that we might walk out the good works that he created for us in Christ Jesus. And I think what Peter is saying is this. When you start suffering for Christ's sake, the temptation is to pull back and stop doing the good works. The temptation is to take matters in your own hands to get vengeance, to tell them what you really think. The temptation at church when you get hurt is to pull back and say, I'm not going to build any more relationships with anybody else. I'm not going to give anymore. The temptation is saying, you know what? I'm suffering. I'm going to pull back. And I tell you, as you pull back, that's a barometer for your trust in God. The more you trust God, the more you keep going, even when you're getting hurt for the very good that you're doing. Corey preached this. David preached this. We're to do the very good that we're slandered for doing. So Chick-fil-A in Orlando, Florida, who was hammered by the homosexual community years ago, what do they do? They bring in truckloads of free food at the blood donor places where primarily it was the homosexual community that was there and they joyfully feed them. They didn't pull back. They didn't say, okay, you're going to treat me that way? See, that's, that's, that's when we don't have faith and we got to take care of ourselves. But when we have faith, we say, I trust you, Lord, and this is so hard. The last person I want to serve is my enemy. The last person I want to serve is that guy that's slandering me. But I trust you. So the sign of me trusting you is me continuing to do good to others. What good is God calling you to do, friend? What good is God calling you to do? These works, Ephesians 2.10, that he's preordained, foreordained for you to walk, and he's got them out there. Without a theology of suffering, we will stop doing good. We will pull back. We will run. Or we'll fight. But we won't serve. 
See, this is an inward attitude that expresses itself in outward good. The basis is our trust in a faithful creator. You see that? A faithful creator. Listen, creator is listed tons of time. Excuse me. Faithful is listed tons of time in the New Testament about God. But only here is God called creator in the New Testament. Peter's point here is this. God is our creator. He gave us life and thus he is able to care for that life. God knows what he's doing. Do you believe that? That gets tested when suffering comes. Do you really know what you're doing, God? Thank you for believing him and trusting him. We rest in this God, a faithful creator, as his creation, the people he formed and will care for, even when threatened by the world around us. Here's the appeal, church. It is difficult to trust when you're on a four-foot platform with your back to the other group. It's difficult to fall straight back without flinching a little. And it is difficult to trust a God whom we cannot see when we're confronting suffering, which we can see and feel. But we can't see him with our physical eyes, but we see him with our spiritual eyes. And he is more faithful than any group of friends in a ropes course that promises to catch us. God created this world. He created us, and he's called us to share in Christ's sufferings, and he will care for us. Trust God as you share Christ's suffering and look to Christ's glory. Friends, there may be some of you that have never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior initially. If that's you, I just beg, I beg you, I beg you. If you see Christians struggling now, and they are, That's nothing to what is coming for you, a non-believer. And I beg you, repent and believe in Jesus today. And believer, I appeal to you, cry out to God for grace to suffer gladly by his strength and to meditate on the promise of glory for those who share Christ's sufferings now. What does it look like for you to trust God? Maybe you're questioning God. Maybe you're saying, God, do you really know what you're doing? Maybe you're questioning whether he can care for you, whether he's going to catch you if you just fall straight back from this four-foot platform. Trust God. For Christ came to suffer first and then to receive glory. And he promises the exact same for us. You You may be complaining this morning. I appeal to you in a moment as we sing, It is well with my soul. And it's not well with your soul. It is troubling with your soul. You're mad at God. You're mad at the church. You're mad at whomever. Oh, God is here to carry you across. Jesus died for that sin and to give you strength to get back in the game. Or some of you may be feeling shame. You've been saying, you know, Al, if I were to go on trial as a Christian, there would not be enough evidence to convict me. I have flinched back from identifying with the name of Christ. I have not said what you've called me to say. God is here to give you forgiveness and strength and courage to suffer for Christ's name. As we go to prayer and as the worship team joins me, I pray that God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of glory, would speak to your soul. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Worship team, would you join me up front? Lord, I pray this morning for my own soul. For there have been times the last year where I have been tempted to flinch back. 
where I have been tempted to say, you know what, Lord, I tried this and I, I don't like suffering, man. It hurts. Make it stop. And Lord, I've stopped trusting you. I've trusted Al Pino. I've lost the vision of the glory to come because of the suffering now. And if there's any of my friends here this morning that can relate to that, or perhaps there are some here that are ashamed because they simply have have perhaps even denied Christ or played like they weren't Christians or, or laughed with the jokes that they shouldn't laugh at or agreed with the perspectives that are decidedly non-Christian at work just to, to get along, to not have conflict. Lord, even now communicate good, fresh conviction, but also forgiveness that we would walk out of these doors into the mission field that you called us into, into the places where we spend 40, 50, and 60 hours a week, and that would be your testimonies. We'd suffer for the name of Christ as Christians, and you would receive glory, and we'd do it gladly. We need you, Lord. We need you. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing, It is well with my soul. Let us sing it in faith. Let us sing it believing God the Holy Spirit will bring wholeness to our souls.